Welcome back to the Charlotte Angel Connection, the Charlotte area podcast linking entrepreneurs, investors, and the broader Charlotte community. As you know, our goal here is to interview the individuals who are building, shaping, and influencing entrepreneurship in the Charlotte region so you can stay invested in Charlotte's growth. Today, we've got Paul Clark. Paul Clark, as many of you know, is the managing director over at Venture South. Venture South is the angel group and venture capital firm started in South Carolina back, um, gosh knows, more than 10 years ago and has slowly expanded its footprint from you know a couple locations in South Carolina to include North Carolina and recently also include the Virginia area. Um, they've had their own innovative approach to you know, growing their network, growing their capital base, and deploying capital into Southeast area firms, uh, Southeast area startups, I guess I, I should say. So I thought it was, a you know, given some of the things that have come out in the press about innovative, interesting ways they're continuing to grow today, I thought it was a great opportunity to sit down and talk with Paul about Venture South themselves and how they've managed that growth and you know, wanted to give y'all the chance to hear it straight from Venture South. We've had them on with a portfolio company in the past and certainly enjoyed it. I um, think they do a great job of contributing to the community at large and just wanted people to be able to hear straight from them. So certainly hope you enjoy our conversation here now with Paul Clark. All right, Paul, welcome to the show. Certainly glad to have you back and joining us and talking to our, our, um, our audience today. Thank you, William. Yeah, excited to be back. So as as we were just discussing a little bit, you've been on the show before. You're on with the portfolio company last time. So audience knows a little bit um, about you, but this time we're going to talk about the success that is Venture South. So um, before, we, um, before we go there, just a refresher for everybody, um, our, our 30 to 60 second commercial of, of who Paul is. Uh, happy to do it. So your more perceptive listeners have probably picked up already that I'm not from the Carolinas originally. Um, I am from just outside London originally, moved to the States about 15 years ago. My wife is a professor at Clemson. So that's the short story about how I got to be in the Southeast. I was an investment banker out of school. I worked for a large PE fund in London and New York. I moved to the Southeast, found that there wasn't a great deal of call for that particular background and skill set in Greenville, South Carolina. Um, But I was fortunate enough to be able to use that to join the local angel group here in town. Um, And to cut a longer story short, um, helped develop that angel group into what is now Venture South today. So my background is investing, investment banking, helping companies. And for the last decade, it's been angel investing and startup companies and really enjoyed doing that. And very happy to share more about what Venture South does and what we've been doing over the last decade with you and, and the audience today. Yeah, no, so it's going to be a fun conversation. So um, from New York to Clemson, um, that's a swing. Um, so what, yep. um, and from the, you know, a more professionally uh, you know, kind of background as far as um, investing and due diligence and stuff like that to a small local angel group, um, talk just a little bit about the first experience that your, you know, first couple of meetings that you showed up to at the, at the local angel group and, um, you know, what was the experience like for you coming a from London to New York and then to Clemson and professional background and everything else, what kind of stood out at you right away? Yeah. So, um, obviously it's somewhat of a cultural transition from the UK to South 
China, um, although in many ways it's a bigger cultural transition for my wife in the northeast of the southeast than it was for me. Um, but we both made that tradition success transition successfully. Uh, my tea is sweet now, and I'm happy to sit down with a plate of cheddar grits and you know, do some do some southern things too. Um, in terms of the shift from large cap LBO private equity investing to early stage startup investing, that was a pretty big transition too, sort of conceptually and experientially. Um, although a lot of similarity, I mean, fundamentally, we're trying to figure out if this investment is a good idea or not. And usually it's a good idea or not if the management team is good and the market is big and the you know, execution is positive. So there's a lot of overlap between the two, not, not as big a shift as one might think. Um, just a few fewer zeros on the end of the investment check and um, you know, less publicity when the companies do well in the startup space than if it's a multi-billion dollar LBO. Um, in many ways, much more interesting and in the earlier stage and smaller companies because you can do something with the companies that you're investing in, which is not always the case um, for larger oil tanker type investments where your impact on their direction can take a while to happen or, or just not be visible. So it was a bit of a shift, but honestly not too big a, not too big a deal. I'd done some work with um, uh, a commercial bank here in Greenville doing some M&A for them and those were smaller transactions. I'd worked a bit with an SBIC fund in, um, in Charlotte. So uh, earlier stage, smaller investments was something I had had some experience in. Um, but it did take a little while to learn just how the mindset shifts when you're looking at companies that could go out of business next week versus companies that you're trying to grow EBITDA by 5% and that would be a good year. Uh, big difference in uh, in the things you analyze and how you do it. Yeah. So um, I'll put myself a little bit of danger because I don't know the answer to this question. So it makes it fun and exciting. The um, At what point did you recognize that being part of the local angel group versus running the local angel group um, was, was the right thing for you to do? Uh, I think I pretty quickly saw the opportunity. I, I really liked being part of the angel group. So Matt Dunbar runs and ran and still runs the, the Greenville, South Carolina angel group. It was called UCAN, started in 2008. Uh, and he's run that from the beginning. And I joined that group, met Matt, really liked Matt, met the rest of the members of that group, really liked them, was impressed with what they did. But it was a one city, 60 person angel group. And, you know, writing a $250,000 investment check in a company. And that was a little bit sort of smaller scale than the other things that I'd seen in the past. And so my, the, the data points in my brain were, how do we turn one of those into the other? How do we expand what is here in Greenville and, and do it over a wider area with more people and ultimately do more investments or write bigger investment checks? Um, so I, I pretty quickly thought that that was a, an interesting challenge, an opportunity. Um, the Southeast has not historically been a hotbed of early stage tech investing and places like Anderson, South Carolina and Spartanburg, South Carolina and Fayetteville, North Carolina haven't done that very much at all in the past. So lots of opportunity to, to build something. I like that. Um, it was an outlet for my own entrepreneurial ambitions as well to build something. Um, and so we formulated a plan with Matt, myself, and our third co-founder of Venture South, Charlie Banks, who I had spent some time working with at the bank I mentioned. Um, we put together a plan to, to go build it. Um, 
to, to sort of replicate what we'd done and, and do it in more places. So it was a, it was a nice coming together of those ideas. What, so what year was that? What year was the kind of um, uh, the meeting with the series of meetings, I imagine, between you, Matt, and Charlie? Yeah, nothing ever happens overnight, but sort of the 2013 and going into 2014 were sort of when we formulated and started executing the, what is now the Venture South plan. So, so you, you had your location, you had UCAN already up and running. Um, that was, uh, you know, Matt was running that group. And, um, and now obviously the success story, I don't even know how many cities y'all are in these days. It seems like it adds by the week. Um, what was the, what was the next strategy? What was the next city? How did you start to test the, we're going to go into a new market type strategy? Yeah, so the first group outside of Greenville that we put together was in Colombia. And the simplest reason for that was because Charlie lived in Colombia and it was the nearest big city to Greenville. So it was an obvious place to start. Sounds selfish. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, a recurring theme about Venture South is we can only expand as far as we're willing to drive. So, yeah, that's a, that was a convenient starting point for us. So we started that group uh, in early 2014. And then by... Um, sort of coincidence or or fortunateness um josh dorfman was um a um, member at the Asheville chamber of commerce in Asheville, north carolina so an hour north of greenville um and he and um his economic development coalition team there were looking to put together an angel group and rather than reinvent the wheel they called us and said we hear you're forming angel groups let's chat about that so that one came to us and so pretty quickly um we had those three locations, Greenville, Columbia, and Asheville, up and running. Um, we already ruined our branding. So we had been called the South Carolina Angel Network with those first two groups. Then we did Asheville, so we had to go back to the drawing board on the branding. Um, but we had a sort of nice, closely knit three cities that we could cover nicely and, and leverage the, the existing operations in Greenville into those places pretty quickly. So it's easier running a single location in a single city, right? What's the what were some of the challenges that y'all started to experience and you had to um, you had to navigate, knock down, fine tune um, as you went from one city to two cities to three cities? Yeah. So, I mean, it, it's not that difficult logistically to run an angel group in one city. It is quite hard to be effective as a single angel group in one city because you're limited by the deal flow that you can see, um, the investor base that you've got in your local population. Um, and ultimately the check size you can write. So logistically it's easier, but maybe strategically scale might be helpful in the early stage space. So we were, we were aiming to try to solve the logistical problems and try to see if that scale thesis we had made sense. Um, so really, honestly, the, the biggest challenge initially was just driving up and down I-26 to get to the meetings, uh, both for us and, and finding a way to make that um, not too time consuming for the entrepreneurs who were trying to raise money and just make sure the sort of coordination between all the different moving pieces worked over distance. And this was several years before we were all comfortable doing this over Zoom or remotely. So this was all in person, you know, pre-COVID era where we weren't used to doing a lot of this thing, these things um, in a logistically complicated way. Um, so we solved those. I mean, it, honestly, it wasn't that hard. We just showed up in the right place and made sure everybody knew where they were supposed to be and it worked. Um, but a decent amount went on behind the scenes to make sure that that worked. Then we continue to compound the problems for ourselves by adding more groups. So that's a challenge that we continually face and still do now we're at 
16 cities from Richmond to Hilton Head, um, that, you know, effective operations remains our, our biggest operational challenge. But to a certain extent, you're the, the business model that you started to put together in Greenville helped with the ability to service or exist in different cities, right? So, um, I mean, most folks here are familiar with, you know, classic angel group model, a couple of companies come in and present every single month, members vote, um, whether you're with Charlotte Angel Fund or Wolfpack Investor Network or whatnot, right? We get some, we get some votes and then we get due diligence and then there's an investment or there's not. The Venture South model, did it um, talk a little bit about that, uh, y'all's model and how it's different from the more traditional localized angel groups? Yeah. So, I mean, there's a lot of overlap and similarity between the two. The same, there's a screening process, there's a diligence process, there's a voting system in place to figure out which companies we spend time on. There's an aggregating the money process. There's a portfolio management process. All of those things are common across all early stage investors. Um, we, we at Venture South want to combine a couple of things. One is everybody makes their own investment decisions all the time. So one of the, one of the challenges that, that some groups or funds have is that if it's a vote system where majority rules, there's always a minority forced to do things that they perhaps wouldn't want to do. So in our, in our model, everybody opts in if they want to opt into a given deal and they leave it alone if they don't want to do it. And that, generally speaking, leads, leads to more engaged people because they want to be engaged and fewer disgruntled people because they're not forced to do things that they are forced to do. So that's one philosophy. Um, the other is that angel groups are actually a lot of work to run and organize and just relentlessly keep on track. And if you are volunteer-led or committee-led or some other kind of informal group, it's hard to maintain that over time. It really depends on the founder or individual's appetite. And if that changes over time, then the groups tend to disappear over time or, or change in, in less productive ways. So we wanted it to be professionally led, consistent, organized with a full-time team um, and, and bring that sort of institutional level of operations to an angel group, which is a little unusual. Um, and then the third piece was the, the scale. So 50 people in one city is great. Cities all over the country have them and should have them, and they do a, a decent job of bringing early-stage money to, to early-stage companies. But there's definitely room for multiple cities working together in some kind of collaboration. There's definitely room for larger entities doing that over a whole state. There was a sort of similar group to us in Alabama that had done the same thing it, joined together some Alabama cities working pretty collaboratively under one umbrella of an angel group. And so we sort of saw how that was evolving and said, that makes a lot of sense. None of the cities we're in are big enough really to be very effective as a single angel group. So let's put them together, see if we can make that work, um, and bring the, the sort of philosophies I mentioned together and see if we can build something. And, and ultimately we did. It wasn't obvious right at the beginning that we would be able to do that, but, um, but the market potential was there and we executed decently well and, and we have what, what we have now in Venture South today. So walk the audience through what a founder goes through with y'all's group though. So I'm startup founder of XYZ company. I reach out to Paul and say, Paul, my idea is brilliant. Um, it's going to be a billion dollar company. Um, y'all should invest in me tomorrow. 
um, because yeah. the door is about to close. Um, and so um, it's probably Excellent. a story. It's probably a story you've heard once or twice. Yeah. Um, so those, so um, then how do those founding, how do those founders run through the system, right? You just mentioned 16 cities. Are they presenting a 16 different chapters or um, what's the process? Um, how has it been fine-tuned over time, right? Got it. Yeah. So um, let's we'll walk through sort of the journey for the entrepreneur. So they reach out to us, cold emails are fine. We, we, have a lot of incoming deal flow from people raising money from you know northern florida to south virginia we, we cover a, a pretty wide geography so they find us or a member will introduce us or another angel group nearby will syndicate a deal with us or an attorney will send us a lead lots of incoming deals lots of entrepreneurs raising money we we try to triage those and select the ones that we think are likely to get most appetite from our members so when I say we, in that case, um, we have a full-time team at Venture South. Kevin is our is our pipeline uh, and diligence head. So he leads sort of the work on figuring out which of the companies that we should spend more time on. But collectively, we choose five or six entrepreneurs that we think uh, tell a credible story. So take the pitch you just did, put some granularity around what the company does, talk a little bit about their exit potential and the deal terms and you've got a pitch that would would suit our members you know pretty well we pick the five or six we think people will get um, and we bring those through our screening process they go in front of our members virtually so through zoom we were doing that pre-covid um, we do did do some of that in person but we wanted to get a broad audience across our group so those have, have been virtual for a while and then those viewers of those pitches which are typically a 30 minute quick online pitch, you know, 15 of pitch, 15 of Q and A, uh, quick snapshot introduction to your business. Um, the, the viewers of that essentially vote on which of the one or two companies out of that cohort that they think are most interesting and, and want to spend time on. So that starts the beginning of the month off. I know by the end of the first week of the month, we have one or two companies that we know we're going to spend the next four to six weeks working with to, to decide if we want to invest or not. The next four to six weeks are a combination of presenting and our diligence process. So on the presenting side, um, we don't make entrepreneurs drive to 16 cities in the Carolinas. As fun a road trip as that is, um, that's also a fair amount of driving and um, is a bit much to ask most entrepreneurs to do. Some entrepreneurs absolutely want to do that and they're very welcome to it. And the advantage to doing it is that um, even now, people investing in people they invest in people that they see and meet and can interact with. They don't invest so well on, you know, by listening to a podcast or seeing the little box on the Zoom screen. It's just hard to get comfortable making investment checks in those situations. It's possible people do it, but the larger investment checks from our group come from people that have met each other. So they, they present virtually in a, in a, presentation format but they also go to mostly our biggest cities sometimes our smaller ones as well depending on how we can structure a particular road trip and when the meetings are and and do their pitch at the same time we're making them do all that work we're also doing our diligence process and if one of those pieces isn't working very well we try to cut it off just to minimize wasting each other's time because that's no benefit for anybody but assuming the pitching is going well and the diligence is going well, we try to make those mesh together so that we've essentially asked all of our questions at the end of that road trip and we can 
finish writing our diligence report, do whatever internal verification work we need to do to have an opinion on the on the opportunity. Um, and then if we you know like what we're hearing as a group, um, we pass the hat and people put their money in the hat or not, and we fund the company a week or two later. Uh, simplifying a lot of complexity all the way along there because life is complicated, but that's the basic idea. Yeah, no, absolutely. When y'all do it, um, when y'all do that, do y'all run everything through a, um, like a series LLC or how do you run um, so that, or is each member on the cap table of the company? How does it work from that perspective? Yeah, so uh, we have one entry on the entrepreneur's cap table. We think that's an important um, simplification. You don't really want to be managing 400 individuals on your cap table. Um, so we are one, we are one entity on the entrepreneur's cap table. We, we do though handle our members' funds as a result of having to do that. So we aggregate those funds through our investment vehicle. You're right. It's a, it's a Delaware series LLC, um, which I know most people have now switched off the podcast, having heard us talking about legal entities. Um, so maybe, maybe that's a rabbit hole we don't want to spend too much time on. Um, but it's basically a big complicated LLC where we make sure all the money goes in the right place um, from the investors into the companies they're aiming at and then from that LLC into the portfolio company. We, we keep back of all the admin part of, of behind the scenes on that. As the, as so, um, as we were talking about, right, in 2014, 2015, you were 14 or you were three cities um, and um, three cities, three guys, you're now 16 cities, um, North Carolina, South, or sorry, we'll go south to north, South Carolina, North Carolina, and now into Virginia as well, right? Right. Um, so 16 cities, how many members do you have today? We have a little over 400 members at this point. Okay. Um, vastly different from the early days, right? So um, you came from a different space and everything else. What's the um, what's the biggest thing you've learned over the course of the last 10 years, right? What's the, um, from not from operating venture South, we'll get to that in a second, investing in smaller startup companies, right? What's the, what's the transition that you've had to make in your head from the larger tankers to the smaller 25 foot Grady Whites? Wow. So I'm not sure. I, well, if I had to pick out one thing from an investor's perspective, I'd say the big learning for me is that it takes a long time to figure out if you're any good at this or not. The feedback cycle on the angel investing in the early stages is just really long. You may have an early exit. You may have a couple of rounds that get marked up because a VC comes in at a massive valuation, you know, six months after you did and things look great on paper. And you've got five years of wrestling companies over to an exit um, before you ever figure that, whether that early momentum was truly what, was indicative of your investing ability or not um, or vice versa. You lose a couple early. You think you, you know, you, you get depressed about how difficult it is to be an angel investor, but ultimately you, you do make good investments. Very hard to, to know that along the way. On so, the other side, sort of, yeah. Pause there real quick. And you're an analytical guy, right? I mean, um, I think most people would uh, um, agree with me on that component. So um, in a good way, not in a bad way, right? Although I don't know if there's such thing as a bad analytic. But anyways, um, that in and of itself, that feedback loop, that elongated feedback loop, that's hard for an analytical person to um, to adapt to, right? So 
how did you, um, how'd you grow and mature and learn through that process of man? I don't know if this is going to work. Yeah, I actually don't know the answer to that yet. I mean, we've been doing this a few years. We think we've got a pretty replicable, you know, reasonable um, process. We think our track record is pretty good, um, but we're all still doing it. We're not all, you know, on our yacht in the Bahamas having made $100 million a piece doing it. So I know we're still, still the jury's out on, um, on everybody doing it. Um, I do think we are, we found ways to, judge whether we're getting better operationally sort of the speed that the deals get done, even doing the same amount of work, the number of investors that participate on a given deal increases, more people join our network, fewer people leave, they stay around for longer. Um, there's, you know, there's internal operational metrics that suggest we're doing an increasingly good job of running an angel group. Our track record is maturing. So one of the answers is just simply time. You just see how things have gone over time and, um, you know, if things go well, you were good. And if they didn't, you weren't. And there's not time you can do to change it. Um, but you, you can at least see better if you're doing a good job or not. Um, so those are some speculations. But honestly, nobody knows the answers to this, this stuff. Early stage investing is sort of hard. So it takes a while to figure out if you're good or not. So one of the things that you said earlier on in the, in the conversation, I think any investor acknowledges the success of a startup and for that matter, any business depends on the strength of its team. Right. Um, so you're constantly assessing and evaluating, you know, other teams. Um, how do y'all step back and assess, you know, the team at venture South and how y'all are continuing to grow as a, as a, on a go forward basis, right. In a good way. Right. I mean, y'all get yeah. along with each other. Um, so again, um, you know, how do y'all grow and push and, and learn and, um, and share those experiences to make sure that your team is, is a team that quite frankly, new members are investing in, right. Cause they're putting money into, to y'all as well. Yeah. So, I mean, I did, they, they are making their investment decisions deal by deal on the given companies, but they are doing that in the context of our process and our diligence work and our conversations. And, and I, we don't ever recommend somebody does something or something else, but it's, within the context of Venture South, which is where we're operating. So, so yeah, I mean, people do join the group because there's some credibility, uh, I think, to it. Um, and some of that credibility is based on Matt, Charlie, and I having done this for a long time. Um, so, yeah, I think that I think that's an important um, consideration. So, y'all recently, recently had... Um, some exciting news with uh, uh, with AngelList come through, right? So, I mean, you talk about validation in the process and whatnot. So talk a little bit about, you know, um, that new side of the business model that pops up with, was it 2021 or was that the end of 2020 that that happened? Yeah, so uh, one of the things that we've tried to do at Venture South is be a bit innovative. Um, we don't want to become a stale, you know, angel group has done the same thing for the last 15 years um so we try to find new ways to bring new people into our group and in the early stages there was a lot of educational content that we did around that so we, we put a non-profit together to educate people on how to be an angel investor or how we thought it was a good idea to be an angel investor um, we put together different structures so we have our main network model angel group which is what i've been describing but uh, in 2014 we also put together what's called a sidecar fund 
and not to get too far into the weeds on the details, but that was more like a VC fund that you put money in and it did the investing for you in a more passive index fund kind of way. So we've had that for a while. That's really good for people that like angel investing, but don't have the time to do active angel investing. So they go in there. They, so don't, want to make their own they don't want to make their own decisions. The decisions get made for them, right? Right. Yeah. Um, with, within some sort of fairly strict parameters about what the fund can do, but, but, but yes. Um, and so we try to bring different models around that sometimes for the first time into the Southeast. So when we did that sidecar fund, it was a pretty unusual to have an angel group with a sidecar fund. Not, it's not atypical now, but it was, we had to learn some new, new techniques then because that wasn't sort of a well-trodden path at that point. And some new, <laughs> some new legal structures too, if you want to get back new on legal, legal structures. structures. <laughs> yeah, right. That was a limited partnership, um, you know, different set of governance, different methods. Yeah. Um, I, I had to learn a lot. <laughs> so we, we tried to bring some innovations like that. And then, uh, uh, so cut through some other stuff that we've done along the way, building out groups, picking a network, you know, different methods of angel investing, different early stage, later stage deals and all of that. Um, last year in 2020, AngelList, which is a big online angel investing platform that I imagine most people, if they're listening to this, are familiar with, they released a product called a rolling fund. Um, and this was a, an interesting innovation in the angel space. Um, it was, it's a mechanism where it, it does two things that a regular fund can't do. One is you're allowed to publicly talk about it. So it raises under what's called 506C rules. It means you're allowed to publicly ask people. You can tell them about the fund and you can publicly ask them to invest in it. So I can say to you, William, why don't you invest in the Venture South Rolling Fund, which I couldn't do in a public situation in a different in a in an earlier sidecar fund or or some under the radar fundraiser so that's one big thing that it does the other big thing that it does is all the admin of running an angel fund is done through AngelList rather than through my spreadsheet at weekends so it's a big improvement operationally uh, and quality of life situation for particularly for emerging fund managers who are doing this and don't have an infrastructure behind them they can use the AngelList platform to do that and then the third innovation, and I guess why it's called a rolling fund, is because that fund is basically an open subscription model. So you can join that fund anytime. You make like a $5,000 subscription to that. Every quarter, you will invest that much money in the fund. And you can do that forever, um, which is a bit different than a typical fund would be where you, you make a commitment up front for X amount and it gets drawn over time and you don't know exactly how long that's going to be or when the next fund is going to come along. So they're kind of more one-off discrete events rather than a rolling fund, which is what, what Angel has come up with. So that was sort of advertised uh, middle of 2020 um, as to a lot of fanfare. A lot of people jumped on board that, um, particularly emerging managers that weren't professional investors yet but wanted to be, had a you know compelling story around their entrepreneurial experience or they were a celebrity of some kind or some, some differentiator that, that made that a good tool for them. Every angel group in the country did not then go out and say, yeah, we, we need to launch a, a rolling fund. Um, but we kicked around the idea at Venture South that maybe that's something that we could consider doing. Um, and it took us a little while to get through the program, you know, put together the, the, uh, the learnings we needed to see if that was a good idea for investors, whether we wanted to spend some time on it or not. And the ultimate result of that was after a while, yes, we, we want to see if we can have one of those ourselves. 
So we also have a Venture South, um, a rolling fund. It's called Rolling South because we like to keep things complicated, <laughs> keep things simple in terms of naming things. Yeah, it's a rolling, yeah. it's a rolling Venture South fund, uh, based on the angel list um, structure managed by the Venture South team, investing in companies in the southeast and marketed mostly to people who aren't in the southeast but are familiar with rolling funds. So a different audience than most of the people that join Venture South who are almost always based in the Southeast, like in-person things, aren't so comfortable online. Um, that's a Venture South member, a virtual first you know, technology engineer from Austin, Texas can join the Rolling South Fund easily. Um, and so it's a slightly different audience for us, all with the collective goal of bringing more capital into Southeastern startups. So fits fits right into our mission, just widens our audience a little bit. Well, congratulations, Paul. If we hadn't lost the listeners talking about legal structures, we lost the <laughs> listeners talking about regulatory 506 raises. Um, yep. So now it's just down to me and you so we can talk about anything we want to, right? <laughs> it's a glamorous business agent investing, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so what's, um, so 16 cities, you've got the fund, the previous fund set up, right? The sidecar fund set up. Now you've got the rolling fund set up. So you've got three different, I don't know if they're completely individualistic in their own. They're kind of sort of different entities regardless. Um, historically, the Southeast hasn't been a hotbed for talent of investable companies. So do you get concerned at any point in time with some of your own innovation and success that you run out of investable companies? You've got too much capital or how do y'all... Um, how do y'all view the investable base in the Southeast as you continue to gain more and more access to capital across the country? Yeah, so I think I would probably argue with you a bit about a lack of talent in the Southeast, even historically. And absolutely today, no question, there's a lot of very talented entrepreneurs in the Southeast. Um, I know you were simplifying a bit there for for rhetorical effect. Um, yeah. <laughs> I do think there's very talented entrepreneurs in the Southeast, homegrown you know, people moving here from other parts of the country because the Southeast is a nice place to live. Um, and in the post-Zoom era, working remotely into those companies in different places is much more feasible. Um, and then you can build a startup here using those resources that perhaps you weren't so excited about doing five years ago. Um, but even five years ago, we had more than enough companies for us to look at and consider investing in. We're only investing in you know, a dozen company, new companies every year. So it's not like we need to have 10,000 amazing startups to choose from to get to 12. We need 12. So we need to you know, figure things, as long as there's enough that much to, to, you know, make us confident that those 12 are good 12, um, you know, we're, we're good to go. So uh, I, I, don't, I haven't seen good deals as a limiting factor on Venture South's ability to, deploy capital and i really don't think that's going to change um there is certainly more people investing in the southeast now which is a great thing um not just through venture south but new funds new people moving here you know seed funds in atlanta vcs in in the triangle more things happening on the entrepreneurial scene in basically every city in the southeast and that's all great um uh, but even with an influx of capital and even with people looking at valuations of venture deals on the West Coast and trying to apply that to the Southeast, I still think the opportunity in the Southeast is enormous and, and continuing to grow. So I'm actually 
even more excited today about building something in the southeast than I was six years ago when when we started Venture Seven. We just ruined my next question, which is, what challenges do you see um, as a southeast investor versus a west coast or northeast investor? Um, and I guess your response is going to be, I don't see challenges, I see opportunities. Uh, yeah, that's the nice pivot. Um, I, I do. I mean, there are challenges. So, I mean, it's, it is worth looking at them. Um, one of the challenges is fully funding rounds is still a challenge. So every angel group fills in two thirds of the envisaged round. And we still need to figure out between us how we fill those up. And that we move the goalposts on ourselves that a bit because now the round used to be 750 that they were raising and now it's, you know, a million and a half. So suddenly we've, we've shifted the goals and have to raise more money. Um, but generally speaking, filling rounds is, is still hard. Um, finding investors that will write the check after the angels have exhausted their investment firepower is still a challenge. So the Series A and Series B and Series C rounds, that still requires somebody to come to the Southeast pretty much. Um, and there's only so many people willing to do that. That's not a challenge that anybody can fix overnight. And there's no one solution to that either. But um, follow-on round funding for companies remains a, remains a challenge. Valuations are punchy in other markets, and we do see some of that in the Southeast. Uh, it doesn't make a huge amount of difference, I think, for the most part on the companies that we're working on. Um, but that does have the potential to limit investor returns over time if, if people are not disciplined about sensible structures. Um, it, it, it limits the investor's return. It also could potentially cause problems for fun founders who suddenly have to justify the previous too high valuation when they come to raise more money later. So there's some knock-on effects there too. Um, there are challenges around taxes. So there's a lot of things going on about changing the tax code. Um, which will ultimately make angel investing less attractive relative to other asset classes if some of those developments happen. But those aren't good things if you want to encourage entrepreneurship and investment in startup companies. So there's work around things like that. So there's plenty of things on the to-do list, lots of challenges we're working on and trying to overcome. Um, but I, I, I do think the, the opportunities still dramatically outweigh those, those challenges. Does Venture South, I mean, one of the challenges you just mentioned was the follow-up follow-on funding, right? Um, you know, 16 cities, sidecar fund, rolling fund, um, uh, being recognized a little bit more, at least in the Southeast and probably on a national level as well. Um, does, does your size yet give you the ability to kind of reach out to the next stage, um, you know, private equity, venture capital, whatever you want to end up calling it and help some of your portfolio companies get to the next round a little bit easier. In other words, do you have the clout yet to make those phone calls and say, Hey, here's this company. They're going to start raising money in the next 12 months. Um, or is that something that y'all are in the process of building to having that clout to being able to make those phone calls um, where they pick up the phone and, and listen to you quite easily? Yeah. So um, Mark Andrees, doesn't take my calls. Uh, you know, Jason Calacanis doesn't immediately pick up the phone when I give him a call. Um, maybe on the maybe on the second call, not on the first. Yeah, right. Maybe. Yeah. Um, I would say um, so. We do do some proactive outreach to help the portfolio companies raise other rounds. Um, we more have useful impact in figuring out how not to have to do that. 
So finding a way to cobble together around in the southeast, if that's the way to go, a different funding source, if that's the way that might make sense, um, rather than sort of proactively helping those entrepreneurs fundraise outside of the southeast. We do it a bit, but it's not something that we are that strong at. It's also not something that, that is that effective because um, investors want to invest in the entrepreneurs. They don't care very much what my opinion is about anything sensibly. Um, and so those those relationships and outreaches and, and diligence processes with with investors outside of the southeast are really the responsibility of the founder because that's the way it should be and that's the way it's most effective. But we do try to help. Um, we are absolutely receptive to VCs in New York giving us a call and saying what deals are there that we might want to come down to Greenville and take a look at. Absolutely, we do those calls all the time. Um, and sometimes they even do come down and do the deals. So you know it can work. Um, for the most part, though, is the entrepreneurs going to other places to, to really catalyze those processes that, that make them successful. Our goal, our hope, is that we can be one piece of an ecosystem in the southeast that can fill in those blanks, can, can create enough companies that, that other people move here or spend time here, or even you know, in the case of a you know, high-profile IPO in Charlotte recently, generate some some wealth and some early stage investors that can write those kinds of checks themselves don't need to go somewhere else for those follow-on rounds that's that's our ultimate goal and uh, we seem to be making some progress towards it so that's great yeah you mentioned ecosystem right i mean the ecosystem in the southeast has come a long ways along with venture south right so over the course of the last 12 years i think you can make an argument that you know the startup ecosystem itself and then the the capital ecosystem that has to be there to support it has, has grown tremendously, still has, um, you know, it's like anything else. It still has growth ahead of it. Um, what's the, um, what's the future role or the future growth for, for venture South, right? Is it continue to tack on additional cities? Is it, um, you know, is it, um, to create, you know, additional nonprofits to help, um, you know, founders get ready. Is it, what is, um, what's the roadmap to the extent that you're willing to share it? Yeah, well, happy to. So, I mean, our goal for Venture South, we're 400 members now, we'd like to be a thousand members. We have 60 million deployed in companies over our history. We want that to be, you know, 200 million over the course of the next five years. We have, we want to carry on doing what we're doing, um, bringing more people into the fold, funding companies, seeing exits, recycling those proceeds into the next generation of companies just what we're doing now but just continue to do it if we were to able you know to be able to afford a private venture south jet we would add more cities around the country um we're limited geographically to places i'm willing to drive to so i can't see us adding too many more groups um to our existing footprint um until we find even better ways to integrate that operationally into what we do um but we have got lots of potential to make our groups in Charlotte and the Triangle bigger, um, to infill in locations where we don't have a group within our footprint, to bring in people that don't want to be involved in a group each month uh, through future sidecar funds, to bring in people to the rolling fund from outside the area. Um, there's, there's tons of potential on each of those things um, that, we, that we, we will need to go execute on if we're going to hit those goals that we've got. And I, I think between the team we've got. So we're a 10 person full-time team plus a 12, 12 to 15 people in the cities that, we're, that we have groups in sort of part-time. 
as the market leaders in those groups. So it's a pretty big operation already. Um, and we think we've built it with the capacity to scale to two or three times the size we are with what we've got in place at the moment. And that's another thesis we're going to have to prove, but hopefully we can, we can, we can prove that over time. I think you're well on your way. Um, what's the, so you've had some successes, right? You've had some companies over the course of the last couple of years that have sold or, um, um, other successful companies along the way. And I don't know for sure, but I assume you also probably have one or two that have struggled along the way as well. Um, what's the, what's the, um, what's the lessons? I mean, again, we'll go back, pause, pause an analytical person in a good way. How do you analyze the successes and failures, right? Do you look more at the failures? Do you look more at the successes? Is each deal so unique to itself that it's hard to really glean data off of to make yourself better going forward? Um, how do you process those victories and, and, and challenges? Yeah, it's a, it's a really fascinating area of data analysis and thesis hypothesis we could go into. Um, I saw two tweets last week. One said, I don't spend any time on my losses because I can't learn anything from them. I learn everything from my wins. And like the diametrically opposed view on the next tweet uh, appeared. It's like, like, well, okay. Somewhere between these, maybe there's the right answer. Um, I don't know what the answer is on, on, on how you learn most effectively from winners or losers. I take lessons from both of those things. I try to celebrate the wins. I try to commiserate the losing because that's just an inevitable part of startups. The default state of a startup is it won't work. Um, and so um, when there is a win, that's absolutely something to celebrate, you commiserate the loss, you try and figure out what you might've done differently or what you could apply to a future project and, and move on. And I, I do think that tolerance of failure is something that the Southeastern ecosystem is learning and isn't as, um, it's not quite as, um, tolerant of failure in the southeast as it is in other other more mature markets where they've where they've seen more failures but they've also seen the win the, the dramatic impact of the wins that make those failures worthwhile um we we're, i think we're still learning that a bit um it's funny so i mean yeah we we look at our track record all the time we update our track record quarterly for all our reporting and we spend a lot of time with data tables figuring out how much things are worth and how much money we made on this and how much we're going to write off this year um and so obviously we're, we're intimately involved in, in, in that track record in real time. We have a pretty good track record, uh, to simplify a lot. We are, you'd expect half the deals you do in angel investing to fail and half of them to be successful. We're more like 70, 30 in the, in the successful direction. But that 30% is painful when, when they do fail. And you do have to try to extract lessons learned because otherwise you'll send yourself up for, for madness, repeating the same mistakes again and again. Um, I would love uh, to, to find people's models for how you actually figure out what went wrong and how to avoid that next time, because I don't think there's a lot of good sort of science around that. Um, and I do think there could be a bit more about that. So that actually is a, is a holiday reading project that I've actually got on my to-do list to figure out how to better identify those learns without relying too much on hindsight bias um, you know, in, in retrospect, it was obvious this company wasn't going to be successful. Well, I wish I'd known that beforehand because it wasn't so obvious then. Um, yeah. So trying to yeah. sort of those simplifications, but actually learn something productive. There's a lot of potential to, to improve that, I think, across all, all investing. 
Yeah, no, the it's so um, it's so specialized, right? I mean, you think about it in the public space. Large cap companies are so much easier to um, so much easier to look at and understand than a small cap company is, right? And then you take that and you you take the cap all the way down to five million um, rather than the five hundred million, and um, the the inefficiencies in this space are drastic and to find out some efficiencies to give you a little bit more of a leading edge um, would certainly be a helpful component to have. Yeah. I mean, if, if we can just avoid one mistake, that is I mean, a half million dollars that we just didn't burn in a big pile of money. So that, that is definitely worth trying to do if you can do it. Yeah. What, um, so you said it and we'll run up short on time as, as we, we get here to the end of our hour. Um, always surprising when we get there as fast as we do. Yeah. Um, it, the Southeast has not been a historical hotbed for investors, um, which means of the 400 members that you have, it's not, it's not folks that have been doing it for 30 years and they understand it. How much, how much handholding or what's the, what's the, most frequent um, kind of, you know, Paul lesson to new members that you're talking about to help them get over the hump of, you know, I shouldn't do this. This isn't right for me. Oh, I made a mistake. I'm the you know dumbest person in the world. Um, how do you handle those conversations? Cause it, I mean, we need that, right? We need more Southeast investors. And by nature, I think a lot of people in the Southeast are so defensive um, we, you know, if we can just convert the next person and the next person, um, to at least understand it and be receptive, it grows the capital base, which grows the potential for companies to raise money around town. Yeah. So our mission from the beginning was to try to try to bring, uh, Charlie's phrases, latent capital off the sidelines. Um, we're trying to get people that have some money that want to invest in things, but either don't know that angel investing is something they could do or um, do know what angel investing is, but don't think it's something that they personally want to get involved in um, and try to at least educate them that, that they could do it. And that comes in a variety of ways. I mean, our, our, the most popular piece of website content we got, we have is our 10 myths of angel investing. People are always looking at that and saying, wait, wait a minute, I can do this for a $5,000 investment in a deal? I thought I had to put $100,000 into something. No, you don't. You can start very small. You should start very small. You should make a lot of small bets, um, you know, and learn as you go along, because that will be a somewhat less expensive way to learn painful lessons if you make small bets than if you make one or two big ones. Um, we get, you know, you can be an angel investor in South Carolina. Yes, you can. You know, there's plenty of structure for that to happen. Lots of good entrepreneurs doing things. I can be a life sciences investor in South Carolina. Yeah, of course you can. Um, but you don't know that, but Here's the data that says you can, and here's some opportunities that you might be interested in. So a lot of education, just because people don't know it's here. You know, if you are, um, you work for a, a big corporation, that's your day job and what you spend your time thinking of. You have a second home, you have a you know diversified real estate portfolio, maybe because you're comfortable with real estate investing. And everybody in the Southeast apparently loves real estate and hospitality investing. So lots of people are comfortable with those things. Um, they haven't, ever given any thought to investing in a couple of tech startups at least putting that on their menu uh, is something that we we have tried to do and there is just massive amounts of opportunity to do more of that um, one statistic i like that's not 
It's a little bit misleading, but it's pretty indicative. We have 400 members of Venture South. There are 16.3 million households in the South, in the United States that could that are accredited investors by the SEC's wealth definition. So 400 against 14.3 million means we are doing a terrible job getting people involved in, in angel investing. Um, and even if you add up all the angel groups and all the VC funds, you know, you get a few thousand people, not 16.3 million households doing it. So the, the opportunity to just get a few more people, a few more million people making startup investments would really make a huge difference um, in all the ecosystems and especially in the Southeast. And our goal is to, to encourage more people to at least consider it. It's not for everybody. You can lose money. It is risky. You don't want to do it probably on your own very much because you will definitely lose money. Um, but if you can figure out ways to do it, have a think about it. That's, that's really all that we, we ask people. Um, and when they look at that, they figure out, actually, yeah, I could do that. It's not going to take tons of time. It's not going to bankrupt me if I do it. It might be interesting to learn about what this, this company is doing. I can be involved in a network. I can learn. There are good reasons to do this stuff. Yeah. No, you've always done a great job. I've always enjoyed the business model that you've created because I think it's um, it's welcoming to additional people. So it's good to see y'all's success over the course of the last, uh, we'll call it uh, eight to 10 years um, and certainly wish the success going forward. Um, and, you know, continue to see you in and around Charlotte and the Carolinas. So um, thanks for, as always, for carving out some time for me today, Paul. I, I think, you know, next time, next time we do this podcast, we'll do another one. Um, we'll get into the analytics and whatnot that you learned over this Christmas break um, okay. because I like analytics and um, we'll have a jolly good old time talking about those for 45 minutes. And um, it'll probably just be me and you after the first five minutes <laughs> on that one as well. All right. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. We'll bring our spreadsheets and lose our audience and that'll be great. We'll have a good time. <laughs> exactly. Well, thanks so much, Paul. I appreciate it. Um, keep on with the success and um, good luck as y'all continue to grow and expand. Great. Thank you, William. I appreciate it. that is the owner of and an investment advisor representative of Portis Wealth Advisors, a registered investment advisor. Registration does not imply a certain level of skill or training. Opinions expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect those of Portis Wealth Advisors. The topics discussed and opinions given are not intended to address the specific needs of any listener. Portis Wealth Advisors does not offer legal or tax advice. Listeners are encouraged to discuss their financial needs with the appropriate professional regarding your individual circumstance. Investments described herein may be speculative and may involve a substantial risk of loss. Interest may be offered only to persons who qualified as accredited investors under applicable state and federal regulation or an eligible employee of the management company. There generally is no public market for the interest. Prospective investors should particularly note that many factors affect performance, including changes in the market conditions and interest rates and other economic, political, or financial developments. Past performance is not and should not be construed as indicative of future results.